Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Today could be described as anything but good for this one person. For this one person, this day was a complete disaster. It was a day of abandonment, a day of spiritual darkness, a day of immense pain, a day of shame, a day of prayers not answered. The man on the cross whom we know to be the savior of the world had an experience on that day, this day, that you would not wish on your worst enemy. Today and, and on Sunday, we will look at Jesus' experience as described by the prophets. The prophets were speaking in their own time of a coming one in the future who will experience a horrific death and a powerful, effectual resurrection. The rich descriptions of Jesus' experience in the prophets paint for us a picture of a Messiah who first suffered, suffered greatly, and thereby purchased a people by his own life, with his own life. Uh, the money that he used to purchase this people was his, was his own life, his own sufferings. And as we will see on Sunday, the, the prophets also paint for us a Messiah who lives to the glory of God and to bring well-being to his people. We begin this morning with Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm written by David describing his own experience at a particular point in his time. But in fact, through the Holy Spirit, prophetically, he was describing in remarkable detail the physical and emotional experience of the Messiah on the cross. No one captures what Jesus was thinking, what Jesus was feeling on that cross more than David here in this particular psalm. This was such an accurate description of the thoughts and the emotional life of the Messiah that the Messiah, as one of his last words as he was dying on that cross, he quoted from this psalm. He, he, he said, he, he pointed those who were listening to this psalm to understand exactly what is going on in front of them. Verse 1 of the psalm serves as a summary of the main complaint of the psalm. This is a psalm of complaint, a psalm of, of lament. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? These are the words, the famous words that the Lord Jesus spoke on the cross. It was a lament that God has abandoned him forsaken him in the midst of all of his troubles. But for us to appreciate the summary of the psalm, we need to spend some time in the psalm first. 
See, the psalmists, the, the, the writers of the psalmists, usually a lot of times they write in the, as the first line, the summary, the meaning, the, the main thrust of the psalm, and then they flesh it out in the stanzas that follow. So look with me for a moment at verse 2 as we try to understand the main complaint of the psalm. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. The night and day parallelism here suggests a continual state of anguish. While David is obviously talking about some struggle in his life at that time, as he is writing this, through the Holy Spirit we find that the real meaning is actually found on the week of Jesus' death. This crying by day and crying by night, finding no answer, finding no rest, true, it was true in David's life, but the true meaning is found on the things that the Lord Jesus Christ experienced in that week leading up to his death. We know that as the Lord Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem on that final week of his life riding on a donkey, he wept over Jerusalem. He wept over Jerusalem because of Jerusalem's rebellion. Christ has come, had come as Jerusalem's king, but Jerusalem will not be gathered to Christ. And so at that moment, the Lord Jesus Christ foretold of the destruction of Jerusalem because of not receiving him. They rejected him, and in fact, it culminates up to that moment when they say, we have no king but Caesar. They rejected the time of their time of visitation. The king that God had brought to them to gather them towards himself, they rejected him and chose Caesar. Why would this bring anguish to Christ? Why would Christ weep over a rebellious people, a people who want nothing to do with him? Why would he care so much so that he actually weeps as he sees the city, as he's riding on the donkey, and he sees the city, his, his soul is overwhelmed with grief, and he weeps over them. Uh, we could probably try and think of a number of reasons, but perhaps the clearest reason is found in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 49, the Lord says that while it is possible that a mother can forget a baby that she nurses, it is not possible for him to forget Jerusalem. In fact, he goes on to say there that I have engraved you, Jerusalem, on the palms of my hands. While you hate me, you reject me, you are spitting on my face, you are at the same time engraved on the palms of my hands. You are ever before me. My love is entirely for you. And so in his emotional experience, the Lord Jesus Christ weeps over the people that he dearly loves, that he chose not because they were wonderful, not because there were many of them, but because he chose to love them. What else do we know about that week of the Lord Jesus' death? We know that on the, on the night that the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, Christ said that very famous phrase, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. As the Lord Jesus was attempting to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was overwhelmed with the stress at what was coming. And what did he pray? For the first time in his existence, 
on earth and before, the first time he desired something in his will that was contrary to the will of the Father. He said, take this cup away from me if it is possible. I know this is the plan. This is the reason I am here, to drink this cup, to go undergo this separation from you, to undergo this darkness. But I can't handle it at this moment. If you ask me really what I would want, I would want something else. If it is possible, take this away from me. But then nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The, 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 the evangelists tell us that he prayed this prayer three times. He prayed it the first time, weeping. He came back to his disciples and then he went back again to pray the same prayer. And then he came back again to his disciples and went back again to pray the exact same prayer, asking, can this cup be removed? Can this be taken away from me? I do not want this. But yet, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He was asking for relief from the agonies that were awaiting him, and he did not get any relief. And what more, how, how else can we understand his, his sufferings, his, his, his cries in that moment? Well, verse 12 to 18 of our text this morning actually explains it in more detail, in, a more, in picturesque details. Look at how he, he describes his troubles from verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue stinks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me, and they divide their garments, my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. In these descriptions, we learn two more things that bring serious, continual distress to the Lord Jesus in this particular moment. The first thing is that he is surrounded by evildoers. Powerful evildoers are all over him and campering him. And the second thing is that his body internally is giving out. He says there he's surrounded by bulls, by many bulls of Bashan, strong bulls that are so powerful that they are like ravening lions ready to consume him. He's emphasizing also in verse 16, he says that dogs encompass me. And the, and the use of the phrase dogs here emphasizes that these are unclean, evil men. He's not surrounded by friends. He's surrounded by dogs. People, things that would not be allowed into the temple, things that, would, that are known in the Middle Eastern life to be unclean, dirty, eating its own vomit. He's surrounded by men who could not be further away from the Lord. And they are gaping at him. They are casting lots for his garments. They are gloating at him. They are staring at him. They are spitting on him. They are mocking him. They're, they are treating him as nothing but a worm. This man who made the universe. But it's not only that that is a trouble to his soul. It is also, you see there from verse 14 and 15, that his body internally is about to give out. It is giving out in every corner of it. 
He says, I am poured out like water. As he hangs on the cross, his bones, he says, are out of joint. His strength is dried up. The idea here is that here's something that was wet and full of life and green, and now it is drying up and slowly dying, 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 and there is no help, no relief from that death. He tells us that his tongue sticks to his jaws. By the dryness that is in his mouth, the dryness that is in his body, he is entirely giving out. His body is saying, I'm done. Externally, he is surrounded. Internally, he's giving out. I want you to listen to this description of what the crucifixion would be like from a medical doctor. This medical doctor describes it this way. The cross is placed on the ground and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful to not pull the arms arms too tightly but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly slags down with more weight on his nails and the wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shoots through along his fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. And again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of his feet. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through his muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself up in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rendering cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down through the timber. And then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. Externally, he is surrounded, and internally, he is giving out. He is in excruciating pain. But I want you to notice the main complaint of this psalm. While I have described to you these different, tri- these different trials, these heavy challenges that he's having, these groanings that he's having throughout this time where, he is, where he's feeling pain and feeling attacked, 
The main complaint of the psalm is not that. Here's the main complaint of the psalm. Of the psalm. God is silent. God is silent. Not just silent, but God has forsaken him to these things. God has brought him to these things and has left him alone to experience these things. The main surprise is not these things, but rather God's abandoning of Christ in the midst of these things. God in heaven does not lift a finger to alleviate Jesus' suffering. And hence he cries out, my God, my God, why on earth have you forsaken me? Why do I cry day and night consistently and I find no rest from you? What is going on? I'm not surprised at the pain. I'm surprised at the fact that you're not doing anything. That you've hidden your face from me. That you're gone and you're leaving me to these bulls, to this pain, to my body giving out. The abandonment by his God becomes not just a peripheral issue, but the main issue in the psalm. You are seeing me suffer, you are watching me suffer, and you are doing nothing and rather hiding your face. What is, what, what, why would he complain that way? Why is that the main complaint? Well, the, a clue is found in verses 3 to 5. Look with me at verses 3 to 5. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. Here we find in these verses, from verses 2 to 5, that there is a relationship here by which the psalmist is pleading. You see, you wouldn't cry out like this to anybody on the street. You might cry out if you're in pain and you're on the road and somebody's passing by. You might cry out to them, but you wouldn't cry out to them as if, well, with this, with this expectancy that this person is going to help you. This person has purpose to help you. You wouldn't cry out like this to anybody. There has to be, there is an established relationship here. And what is the established relationship? That God has established a covenant with himself and the Israelites. By examining these verses, we'll see that this, this, that this particular cry is a serious cry of injustice. This is bigger than a parent who sees their child screaming from pain and does nothing. Yes, that would be horrific if a parent could just watch their child screaming from pain and does nothing. But this is far deeper than that. This is bigger than an ambulance racing past leisurely, not, well, you can't race past leisurely, <laughs> driving past leisurely while there is someone knocked over by a car bleeding to death and then just look at them chewing gum and pass by. While that would be a travesty, that would be a horrific thing, it is far deeper than that. It is this, God has been good to us. God has been the savior of our people. He has made a covenant with our fathers. There is a covenant here, an established relationship where God has made it very clear that in the day of trouble, these people cry out to him and he helps them. And it has been a cycle that way from the beginning. 
He, they cry out in their pain and He helps them. They cry out to Him in their pain and He helps them. It is the established relationship between God and His people. In Psalm chapter 50, God even describes His relationship to the Israelites in those specific terms. He says, here's the relationship between me and you, Israel. It's not that I want your bulls and goats. I'm not, I don't get hungry. It's not that I, re I want you to do all these things for me. He, he synthesizes, do you want to know what exactly is the relationship that you and I have? This is what it is. On, the day, on your day of trouble, you cry out to me. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. That's the relationship. On your day of trouble, when bulls are surround you, when your internals are giving out, when you are alone and crying out and the nations around you are destroying you, on that day, you cry out to me, I will save you and watch me be faithful and you will glorify me. That's the established relationship between God and Israel. But one of you might say to me, hold on, hold on, hold on, Lelo. God has in the past allowed the Israelites to be tossed to and fro by other nations, has he not? God has allowed the Israelites to be taken in by other nations, to be laid, to be made slaves, to be oppressed. How is it that we are supposed to trust that that, that, that was such a, an airtight relationship? Here's how. It was a part of the covenant, the deal from the beginning. In Deuteronomy 28, God said that if you turn away from me in any way, if you go to other gods, if you rebel against me, if you live as though I never gave you a law to obey, then you will watch me leave you alone and you'll get what you are actually asking for. The other nations will come in and take you and do whatever it is that they want, want with you. But if you keep my laws, if you're walking straight with me with my laws, then I will protect you. I will free you from, the, from all your enemies. I will, give, I will give your enemies over to you. So perhaps is that what's happening here? Is the psalmist here hiding some sin that he's not telling us? The psalm, is the psalmist here perhaps in Psalm 22 acting like a victim? Complaining at God, God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I crying out and you are doing nothing? Why is it that I'm here and crying and you're doing nothing? Is, is that just a show? Is he perhaps pretending? Does he know that he's living in a, in, a, in, a, in a repetitive, consistent sin such that God is now giving him over to what he deserves? Well, the answer, the first answer to the question, the primary answer to the question is no. Turn with me for a moment. Turn your eyes to verses 9 and 10 of our psalm. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. In these verses we see that this person has been with God from birth. He has always cried out to God. This person has not known a day or a moment where he does not belong to God, where he has not walked in the ways of the Lord. Even in verse 8, we see that those who mock him, mock him on, mock him on the basis of the fact that he trusts the Lord. 
He is known among the people that this is somebody who's always walking in the ways of the Lord, always talking about the Lord. This is the Lord's man. This is an established fact. This is someone who has kept the laws of God. He has kept the commandments. He has kept the covenant. And in this particular case, the only person who's not keeping their end of the bargain is God. This man has done everything right. God is the one here who is on trial. I want you to think a bit more about the imagery that we're seeing here in verse 9 and 10. When, a when children are born, their main protectors are their parents. The most nourishing relationship that a baby has is with their mother as she nourishes and cares for the infant. But here the image that we're given is that from the moment he was in the womb, not even out of the womb, from the moment he was in the womb, the person who was caring for him, the person who would, that he was told to trust, made to trust in, the person who was coddling him and taking care of him, while he was even a suckling baby at his mom's bosom, that person is God. The person who was nurturing for him, holding him, teaching him how to walk, raising him up with all the, all the right ways and all his ways, up until adulthood, the person who, who took him in was God. And yet here, in the weakest moment of his life, in the darkest moment of his life, God is far. In the moment that he needs God the most, God the most, God is nowhere to be seen. You see, God has said, has set his, himself in the scriptures as one who hears the cries of people when they are weak and in need of him. If you read the Psalms and if you read the prophets, you hear the you are here that widows are told that cry out to God, He will hear you because He sees your oppressed situation or He sees your lowly situation. We're told that orphans should cry out to God freely because God is the Father of the fatherless. Those who cry out to him in sincerity, God says, I will never cry out, but here is a righteous man. Here's one on this day, 2,000 years ago. Here's one who has not broken the covenant once. Not once thought even something that is against God. Not once thought a thought of rebellion. Not once has done anything but eat the food from the moment he was young. The food which is to do the will of the Father in heaven. And in his deepest, weakest need, he's, he's left alone. Here he is today on this darkest day, when his darkest moment, when the bulls are encompassing him and all his enemies have come, on this day, his father is nowhere to be found. And when we think about this more, it is not as though God has perhaps expressed disapproval of this man at any moment. In fact, the, the very opposite. Three years before this moment, as Christ is there, crying out, why have you forsaken me? Three years before this moment, there was a baptism where God spoke very strongly. He was heard, very boldly. He was heard from on high saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. In the assessment of the people who have known his life, they know that he trusts the Lord. In the assessment of God, who knows him, he says, this man is nothing but a joy to me. 
I am pleased in him. There is nothing wrong in him. I entirely rejoice in him. In fact, all of you listen to him. He is, in, in very real terms, what humanity was meant to be. And of course we know, and as a side note, we also know that he was with the Father from all eternity past. And there we're told that when they were together in John 17, we're told that what they had together was a rapturous love, enjoyment of each other, entirely pleased in each other, such that even this whole thing, this whole redemption plan, everything that is happening, is happening because the Father wants to give the Son a gift. The gift which is a people to worship Him. But here He is, on this particular day, needing help. And God is silent. God turns away from him. Look at verse 11 for a moment and see how he, is cry, how he repeats his cries to God. Look at verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Jump to verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. In the past, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Does the Father answer this prayer in the positive? Does the Father hear the pleas of his righteous one, the one whom he loves? Does he hear these pleas and comes and rescues him from this moment of trial? Does he take away this cup from him, this cup that he does not want to drink? The answer is no. Jesus, for the first time in his entire existence, experiences something he has never experienced before. He is forsaken by the Father. He is forsaken by God. He is left in this moment to experience separation from God. How do you define hell? How do you define eternal Destruction, eternal damnation. One of, the, one of the, the, the clear descriptions of what hell is in the scripture comes from 2 Thessalonians, where Paul says it is an eternal destruction. An eternal destruction. But then you might wonder to yourself, what does that, what does that even mean? What do you mean it's an eternal destruction? Well, the word that he uses there for destruction is actually a word that is used for things. Generally, it, is, it can be used in different ways. But one of the clear ways that that word is used, it is when it is used for things that are now of no purpose. Things that are now existing, continuing to exist, but they do not have their purpose. They are completely used up. It is used to speak of a land that is no longer fruitful in the book of in Ezekiel chapter 6 verse 14. Where, there, where, you, where you work the land, you imagine you have a massive plot and you have a whole bunch of land here and you're, you're plowing, you're, plow, you're plowing here. This is your livelihood. You make rows and rows and rows and rows, but your field produces nothing. It is entirely barren. It is there, but it is barren. It has no life in it. It is also used to describe oil that is poured out to no purpose. When oil is there, it still exists, but it is now purposeless. 
It is just something that exists, but it is without life, without aroma, without any kind of fragrance. What is the point of it? It is also described um, of a king who is no longer doing his job. A king who is just a figurehead, who is just there, but he is weak. His, the, the, the station that he has it is, is entirely useless. It is no longer a benefit of no purpose to the people. That is what hell is. Hell is a continual an existence without connection to the maker of the universe. Hell is being separate from God, the, favor, the, favorable, the favorable presence of God, where all the good things that come from being human, that come, not from being human, that come from God for humans, laughter, sunshine, goodness, taste buds, knowing reality, being able to see in the light. That is why it is described as an eternal darkness. Because now it is dark and all that is left to experience is just sin, unabated, uncontrollable. That is what Jesus is experiencing. He's experiencing something he's never known before. To be away from God and to only taste sin. To only know the disease, the despicableness, the slavery to sin. That's all he knows. At that very moment, the scripture says, He made him who knew no sin sin. He made him sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ is experiencing something at that very moment that is hor horrific. We call it Good Friday. It is Good Friday for us. But for this man, for what he did for us, this was a, this was a, a separation, a, a chasm, a darkness that he could not imagine. And you ask why? If it is not because Jesus himself is harboring some, some sin, as we've just seen, it's not because Jesus himself deserves to be cast out, then why is it? What is happening? Well, for us to understand that, I'll ask you to come with me to another prophet, the prophet Isaiah, as we see the reasoning for why this happened is explained to us. Look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53 from verse 4. Here in Isaiah 53, the idea, the experience that we're seeing, the sorrows that we're seeing explained in Psalm 22, they are given, that we're seeing in Psalm 22 the, the, the sorrows described, but here in Isaiah 53, we, also, we see them described, but also we see a reason for why they are happening. Look at verse 4. Surely he, the Messiah, bore, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. What sorrows, pray do tell? Is he talking about moments when we don't have money? Is he talking about moments when a relationship breaks down in our life? What sorrows? Is he talking about moments when our businesses falter or some ideas that we had or when we're put down and we're feeling shamed. What sorrows is he talking about? He's not talking about any of that. The sorrows that he is speaking about here is the sorrows that we deserve this separation from God. We are the ones who deserve to be forsaken because of our actions, because of our thoughts, because of our lifestyles, because 
unlike him who from the womb he was cast on to God and has not known a single day where he has not pleased the Lord entirely 100%. In Genesis 6, we are described entirely different from him. It is said of us in Genesis 6 and Genesis 9, it is said of us that every thought and meditation of our heart is, evilly, is evil continually. Not for some moments. Not, not for some times. Continually. We are manufacturers of evil. We are those who always think up evil, inventing new ways of evil. Have you ever noticed that it is easier to sin than to love God? Have you ever noticed this? A few weeks ago, um, our brother Marco so helpfully explained to us prayer, and he said, he quoted Sinclair Ferguson saying, one of the things you could do to make somebody feel guilty is to ask them how's their prayer life. But you have to ask this question, why is it so hard to pray? If God is the greatest good, if God is the highest aim, if God is as beautiful and wonderful and satisfying as he says he is in the scripture, why is it so hard to pray? Why is it easier to scroll? Why is it easier to gossip? Why is it easier to complain? Oh my goodness, South Africans are complaining. Why is it easier to complain? Why is it easier to fight? Why is it easier to not forgive? Have you ever thought about this? All the things that God calls us to take an effort. Sometimes he gives us grace. Don't misunderstand me. Sometimes he gives us grace where all we want to do is be with him and do things that please him. But you and I know if we've walked the Christian life for any amount of time that most of it is described by discipline. Most of our failings are because of a lack of discipline. It is because the reason, the answer to the question, why is it easier to sin? Why is sin so more enticing? It is because we have fallen and that is all we want to do. We have moved away from true north. And because we have moved away from true north, what we deserve is this forsaking that Jesus Christ experienced. This darkness, this chasm, this not hearing God, not, he not even having a hope that God is going to, he going to hear you. He continues here, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, by the mechanism of his wounds, by the mechanism of his sorrows, by his sufferings, we are healed. Because he suffered, we can now be made whole. Because he was separated from God, we now can have access to God. Because God did not answer his prayer, now God can hear our prayers. Because God acted and treated him as though he was a worm, not even, not even condescending to listen to him or even to assure him that he's hearing him, now God can have fellowship with us. All we, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 9, 
and they made, with, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, nothing found wrong in him, yet he was treated as though everything was wrong with him. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God had prepared the Lord Jesus like a lamb, a pure lamb, a clean lamb, whom he had cherished from the womb, such that when the time is right, the lamb would experience the agonies of hell on behalf of the people that God dearly loves. God loves his people. Don't you be confused. All of this is done for the glory of God, yes, for the, for the glory of the Son, indeed. But don't miss this. God loves his people. The people that he has put his love on, he loves them dearly. And their sin, their rebellion, like we saw with Jesus as he entered Jerusalem, causes him to weep. But in his grace, he has created a way, he has made a way such that this lamb is crucified so that we don't have to only receive what we deserve, which is the unmitigated, just wrath, anger, and despising of God. So where are you this morning as it relates to this man? Are you trusting in your own works or in anything else such that when God comes to give an, asks you to give an account of your life, you believe that you can point to certain things that will make you balance in front of him? Are you here perhaps this morning completely even unaware that your actions this very morning deserve to be, you deserve to be destroyed for them for all eternity? Are you even perhaps just unaware of that reality? That you deserve to be separated from God? Do you believe that perhaps somehow because of things that have happened in your life, because of your situation in life, God must hear you because of where you come from or what struggles you've had in life and all these other things? Do you believe that perhaps God owes you a good eternity? I'm sorry to rain on your parade, but all that you deserve is the darkness that was experienced by this man. All that you deserve is to have your insides moving and, and asphyxiation internally and enemies surrounding you externally. All that you deserve is darkness, not, having, not hearing a moment, not having a moment where God can assure you of hearing your prayers and acting on them. My friend, this, this man suffered this way so that you don't have to. He took this punishment on himself so that everyone who would look to him, who would cry out to him and ask for the forgiveness of his sins might receive it freely because the punishment of, for sin has been given on him. But if you reject him and you continue on your life as you, look, continue, as you came here today, you continue on your life that way, what do you think will happen to you? Separation from God. Eternal damnation from heaven. Complete separation from goodness. You might not feel it now. Because right now you're able to, to quieten yourself down with little trinkets. You're able to quieten yourself down. You know, you've got friends and family who love you. You've got things going well and everything. The sunshine and rain. You're able to see your investments grow. You're seeing things. For you right now, it just seems like everything is fine. And you're not actually seeing it. But let me tell you. Let me warn you. 
The day is coming where God will, will, will remove you from all the things that you trusted in so dearly. It will, it will be a dark day, a day of the Lord in your life. And unless on that day you have this advocate on your side, unless you have Christ, you will be found naked and wanting. And all that will be left to you is judgment. Repent of your sins. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in him. For those of you who are in Christ, my hope this morning for you is that you will remember again as we use this, this holiday to remind ourselves of what was done for us, that you'd remember again what it is that is the main thing in your life. The main thing in your life is not all these other little freedoms that you have. The main thing in your life is not all these little things that you can get and can be taken away. Why put your trust and your joy in things that can be destroyed by thieves? That moth can come, moth can come in. A natural disaster can come in. No, my dear Christian, my dear friend, dear beloved of God, the main thing in your life is this, that Jesus Christ was separated from God so that you do not have to be. That is the real thing in your life. That is the lasting thing. That is the abiding thing. That whatever happens here, what you have is fellowship with God now and into eternity forever. Let's pray. Forgive me, Father, for I've failed to accurately describe the agonies of your son on that cross. Uh, my imagination, my thought processes, and my lips are not adequate to describe what your son experienced as you forsook him. Who can look into these things, the depths of these things, when God does not speak, does not answer, does not comfort his own son, his beloved son? And all for what? that we might be saved. Oh Lord, the love that you have for us is incomparable, unspeakable. The, lo the love that you have for us that you would move in heaven on our behalf this way, to despise your son in such a way who has done nothing but honor you, to, to, to hate your son in such a way who has done nothing but love you, to act in a manner that is completely un unknown to you to treat a righteous man with evil. Who can speak of this paradox? But all we want to say, Lord, is thank you. Thank you that this happened on our behalf. Thank you that you do not give us what we actually deserve. Thank you that you do not give us what our rights are. Destruction and eternal separation from you. And oh Lord Jesus, we repent of moments where we have not thought on your excellencies for us and how you have acted on our behalf. We repent, Lord Jesus, of moments where we have treated your sacrifice for us as if it is something light, something anybody could have endured, something anybody could have done. When, we, when our hearts are enamored with other things, with other lovers, Forgive us, Lord Jesus. What you have done for us is enough. Help us to live in light of this, 
May this be a reality in our lives, that we treasure you and honor you and love you for what you did for us. In your name we pray. Amen.